Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The United States is often described by many of its citizens as having the best democracy in the world. However, even a cursory study of voting rights in this country reveals such claims to be exaggerated. Additionally, it became apparent to many in 2000 and again in 2016 that in the election of our president, this country is not a pure democracy. And the winner of the presidential race can, in fact, be the loser of the popular vote. And the reason a candidate can win the presidency while losing the popular vote, which has happened four times in our nation's history, is because we elect our president not by who secures the most votes, but through the electoral college. As the votes for the next president will be tallied in a few short days, we wanted to take some time to talk about the electoral college. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the origins and purpose of the electoral college, the advantages and disadvantages of this system, and whether there is a better way to elect the president of the United States. We are delighted to have joining us for this discussion two wonderful law professors, Nancy Chi Canalupo, a professor of law at California Western School of Law, and Atiba Ellis, professor of law at Marquette University School of Law. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Great to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation to join you. Absolutely. So. Um, Atiba, I'd like to start with you. So a lot of people have heard of the Electoral College, but most aren't quite sure as to what that is. Can you begin by just describing what the Electoral College is? Sure. So as you mentioned in the introduction, the Constitution doesn't allow for election of the president directly. And we can talk about the reasons for that in a second, but the electoral college is the mechanism by which we elect the president. Every state and the District of Columbia is allowed to select electors and they vote for the president. So when you're voting for president, you're technically voting for the electors for your state who will then cast the vote for president somewhere a little over a month after the actual presidential election takes place. And so this is in Article 2 of the original Constitution and the 12th Amendment to the Constitution create the Electoral College system. All right. Thank you. And Nancy, can you talk about why the Electoral College was chosen as a means to select president as opposed to just the popular vote when, you know, for every other election that we have in this country, it is the popular vote. What was so significant about the selection of the president? Well, so the, the first issue was that the founders were actually pretty distrustful of direct democracy 
And so they put in a bunch of things into the original constitution that would minimize or, or you know, were not direct democratic kinds of um, mechanisms. But more importantly, the electoral college is part of what is referred to as the three-fifths compromise, um, which was the compromise that allowed enslaved persons, um, enslaved African-Americans for the most part, who um, to be counted for population purposes in terms of setting the number of electors. And, but of course, because they were enslaved, they did not get a vote. And so it was a way to basically artificially increase the power of slaveholding states and slave owners in the election of the president. And in that sense, it is actually, I think the Brennan Center has called it the most undemocratic institution of the American government. Well, let, let me just ask, going back to uh, Achiba, who are the electors and how are they chosen? Hmm. Right. So in modern practice, the electors are people usually picked by the parties to, in essence, meet together in the state capitals somewhere around 40 days after the presidential election to cast these electoral college votes. So each political party, in essence, has its own slate of electors, and they coordinate with each state's legislature in order to pick those electors. Now, the, the question building off of Nancy's point is, well, how many electors do does each state get? And these are the votes, you know, and you see each, you know, you think about election night, right? And North Carolina has such and such number of votes. Florida has such and such number. Wyoming has such and such number. That number is based on the number of representatives and senators that each state gets. So the smallest being Wyoming, you know, with the bare minimum of three, um, the largest being California, and I forget the number, it's somewhere close to 60, I think. Um, but, and so in that way, it's based on apportionment, right? Each, every 10 years, we take a census. The census figures out how many people are in the United States. And then we divide up that number to create the number of people in each congressional district. And so, and that way, each state gets the number of representatives that they get. So that equal, you know, representatives plus senators equals the number of electoral college voters who will cast the presidential vote for that decade. And so, but to go back to the history for just a second, then, you know, that shows you, I mean, this has always been the system of apportionment, which meant that in the Southern states, in the, until after the Civil War and the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, except for those convicted of crimes, the apportionment was based on the whole number of persons plus three-fifths of the number of, number of persons in what the Constitution calls servitude, but what we know was meant was slavery. And so that's where that inflation comes from in terms of 
how many electoral college votes each state gets. And the South got an inflated number because of that three-fifths compromise. What then guides the electors vote? Uh, you say that they are chosen by uh, the party and that then gives to them the authority to uh, speak for the state at the end of the election. Right. But what is it that guides that vote? Is that just purely subjective or is that guided by some legal principle or authority? Mm -hmm. So originally, before we were even, remember the original constitution was written without the notion of parties in mind, right? The, you know, the founders wrote at great length about wanting to avoid party and some of these mechanisms in the original constitution were to, you know, forestall the creation of political parties. But political parties were created anyway because of constitutional disputes and arguments, you know, think back to Hamilton and the fight between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and the like. But the point is the electoral college was originally intended to allow the electors to exercise independent discretion. But with the rise of political parties, what got embedded in the law was the requirement. And the modern day is that the electors are required to vote for the presidential candidate that the state popular vote chose. And ordinarily it's the parties, the party who wins gets to offer the list of electors. And that way there is typically no conflict, but sometimes there is. And, and in the few times that an elector, you know, deviated from the script and voted for someone not who they were supposed to vote for, they got penalized. State law actually provides for <laughs> fines and penalties for people who deviate from the rule that you have to vote for the winner. Um, and, and actually the Supreme Court recently said that those, elect, those faithless elector laws are constitutional. I'd like to explore the, the point uh, about the inflated numbers, especially you know, in the South, um, and even after you had the 13th Amendment, now you've got individuals who were counted as three-fifths actually being counted as, as full persons. Um, and how that plays into the desire on the part of so many in the South to suppress the vote of the formerly enslaved. Um, Nancy, I think there was a point you wanted to make and, and, and feel free to, to do that. And if you could also kind of expand upon the point you were making about um, just, uh, well, the inflated number and how we see that being utilized when uh, basically there's an effort to give power to one group over the other. Right, well, so states have an enormous amount of power to influence how things are inflated or not. And, and that's really done through the state government and the state legislature and state laws. So it's not so much the electoral college in and of itself, it's the combination of the electoral college. I mean, in modern times, it's the combination of the electoral college and the state laws that are sort of winner take all, right? So, so with the exception of, I think, only two states, 
every elector goes to whoever wins the popular vote in that state. Um, but that, as we saw in 2016, and to a lesser extent in 2000, in 2000, um, a, a you know that can be a a tiny tiny number of votes, um, and then all of the electors for that state go to the go to the winning candidate, and so so that is a dis that creates a distortion. Um, and really, it's the state governments that have the ability to control that because they don't have to have winner take all laws and they control how the how the electoral college electors are um, allocated. And so so, you know, that's where racism comes in again. Right. Is that if you have an active desire to continue to suppress the vote, um, you can set up your state elector allocation in such a way so that, and, and you know, and you can pair that with racial gerrymandering and a number of other things that are in the power of the, um, of the state government to continue to suppress the vote in that sense. Well, are, are there any states now that uh, don't uh, uh, employ the uh, winner take all approach? Yeah, there yes. are two. Two. Two of them. <laughs> Go for it, I, I believe it's Maine and Nebraska actually allocate their votes. I think both of them, Nebraska is immediately on my mind. Nebraska has three congressional districts. And so three of their five electoral college votes go to the winner of each congressional district. So the presidential candidate who wins in the Nebraska first congressional district, they get that vote. The other two go to the winner of the state popular vote. So oftentimes, you know, districts may trend conservative or liberal, you know, based on just garden variety incumbent protection gerrymandering. So those lock in those votes, but then the winner of the popular vote gets the two. So oftentimes you get some sort of two, three or four, one split in the way those votes get cast. I mean, the idea is that that attacks the kind of distortion problem that we're talking about, but only does so, yeah, it's no substitute for popular vote by some other measure, whether it be the entire state or the entire country. And, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, we don't hear about, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the swing states. Um, and I think to, to kind of demonstrate the impact that having proportional um, allocation of the electors, the impact that that would have. I think Texas is a good example. So I, I think Texas has about 38 electors. Uh, Texas typically will go, um, you know, Republican. So you've got the Republican candidate who will get the all 38 electors, but that doesn't necessarily represent 
the uh, percentage of the you know eligible voters or those that voted who may in fact be Democrats. So you've got a lot of electors that could be divided amongst the different candidates as opposed to the winner take all. Is is that a, a good example of how even just modifying what the states individually could do to make the system more equitable? Nancy, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that that you could certainly do it that way. Um, and I think that it so you could create a state law in which the electors are allocated based on the percentages within the state of the of the popular vote. But I actually think that given that the presidency is a national post, it's called the national vote popular vote state compact, I think. Um, and, and what that does is it sets the electors to go with the national popular vote as opposed to the state popular vote. So any state that has signed on to the compact would then give all of their electoral votes to whoever won the national popular vote, whichever candidate won the national popular vote. And I think that that for a national office like the presidency is probably the most democratic way of doing it. Although certainly allocating the, um, the vote, the electors by popular vote within the state would be a significant improvement <laughs> on the system, the, on the winner take all system. Uh, this is uh, the Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we are talking about uh, the Electoral College and the many questions that many of you have about uh, that, uh, that uh, dreaded uh, institution as viewed from the mindsets of uh, many people. We, we're going to take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us, and we will be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Voting is a cornerstone of democracy. We have the freedom to engage in issues we care about, to build power in our communities, and to create real change. The 15th Amendment of the United States Constitution, as well as the Voting Rights Act of 1965, prohibits discrimination in voting based on an individual's race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Although voting policies are primarily created and enforced at the state level, all states must abide by the 15th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act. Election Day is Tuesday, November the 3rd. On this day, voters in North Carolina may vote at their assigned polling place. This is different than early voting, where eligible individuals could vote at any early voting site in their county. On Election Day, polling places will be open from 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. Any voter in line at their assigned polling place at 7.30 p.m. will be able to vote. Pursuant to a federal court order in North Carolina, registered voters will not be required to show a photo ID prior to voting. Voters can find their assigned polling location as well as their general election ballot at www.ncsbe.gov. As important as it is to vote, being educated on candidates is equally we choose our leaders and remove those leaders who don't represent our values on the local, state, and federal level. More information about candidates and their positions on important issues can be found at ncvoterguide.org, ncsbe.gov, 
andballotready.org slash NC. Your vote is your voice. Let others hear. Virtual Justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening and see you at the polls. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with our guests about the Electoral College. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Atiba Ellis, Professor of Law at Marquette University of Law, and Nancy Chi Canalupo, who is a Professor of Law at California Western School of Law. So Atiba, can you talk about why it is that there are sol- there are uh, solutions being proposed to modify the electoral college? So as opposed to just changing it, why can't we just change the electoral college and just go to a popular vote? So I put it this way, right? The, the electoral college could be abolished, but it would take a, a constitutional amendment to do so. And basically to pass an amendment to the US Constitution, it requires the approval of both houses of Congress and three fourths of the states in the United States to pull it off. So I think the thinking is rather than go through that process, which would require a lot of states who basically have outsized influence, as we've been talking about, via the Electoral College, you know, the states and the national compact are basically saying, well, we can buy state legislative declaration, create a workaround, you know. So the challenge is, you know, it it would require national consensus in order to pull off this, this transformation, but that sort of just brings into clear view the fact that there are lots of states today who are deeply invested in the fact that their seven or eight electoral votes can really matter and that their electoral votes at the end of the day are overrepresentative of the population that they may well have, right? The deepest critique of the electoral college is this exaggerated, the argument that there's an exaggerated influence by those states. And, and in particular, from you know, talking about this from a point of view of structural racism, it's many of those states are the middle of the country states that are largely currently white. So, you know, and, and in a sense, yeah, it, I, whenever I teach this to my election law class, I call it sort of, it's the original racial gerrymander, um, the electoral college. And, and, but it distributes influence. I mean, another way to think about it is in terms of just sheer partisanship, right? A number of those states that I've pointed out are largely go Republican where the and they are not big urban centers, as opposed to 
the states on the coast, which go largely democratic and have precisely because they have major urban centers. I think, you know, one of the popular ways of thinking about this is like the city of Los Angeles is in and of itself bigger than at least a dozen of the states in middle America. So that shows the, and, and, and I think I'm, you know, that estimate is low of how many of those there are. And, but you get the point, right? There is this big sort of distribution of population between the urban centers and rural America. And that also breaks along, you know, diversity lines that a number of these number of the cities are far more diverse and contain more Latinx and African-American citizens where middle America contains proportionately far more white Americans. So, you know, this inflation has racial consequences even today. But from, from, the, from the perspective of promoting national unity, don't you want to encourage all of the states to have a buy-in in the uh, decision as to who uh, the president of the country will be? Yes, I think you do, but I think you want that buy-in to be equal in a democracy. Um, and you know the and basically the way that the whole that the electoral college distorts the sort of one person, one vote is in, in the modern context is that, you know, any state that is, that clearly leans in one political direction or another, right? For one political party or another, uh, essentially all, because of the winner take all system, any vote above 50% of the votes or 51% of the votes in that state are wasted. Um, and, and, and meanwhile, <laughs> you have these, um, you know, you have, have a few votes in particular states that do tend to be white dominated um, that are, you know, those few votes are, are deciding the entire election. So I think that's the, that's the real problem with democracy. I, I will just add, so I did a little bit of research on this um, and the Brennan Center has actually shown that there were, that over time there have been over 700 amendments proposed to get rid of the electoral college which has not had the popular support of the American population as a whole since the 1960s. Um, so, you know, so this is a real problem that, you know, this institution really does not fit what, what the American public wants. King, Nancy, you were talking about uh, the the need for or responding to Irv's question about the need for buy-in and, and the wasted votes. Uh, and when about the current electoral college system, uh, it actually doesn't facilitate 
a number of states being involved in the campaign process. So Atiba, you're actually in one of the battleground states. You're in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how the Electoral College exacerbates this uh, uh, dynamic where you have candidates, presidential candidates going to just a handful of states and responding to the concerns of maybe just those handful of states? Sure, so the college basically, this is the college's structure plus the fact that, like we were saying before the break, you know, a number of states are basically, you know, solidly Democratic or they're solidly Republican. But then there's a handful of states like the state I'm in, Wisconsin, and probably Michigan and Pennsylvania, which you, you hear about on the news all the time, where the population is basically so even or so closely divided that it's unclear whether those states will actually go one way or the other, depending on how polling is going and the like. So basically, if you're a presidential candidate and you can strongly, strongly rely on so many votes it takes, and then you think to yourself, okay, I have to win 270 electoral college votes in order to win, then you're gonna spend your time in those states where that handful of votes is still up for grabs. And oftentimes that means ignoring or giving short shrift to all the other states. So suddenly, every time you turn on the news, you hear that one candidate's in Michigan and the other candidate's in Pennsylvania, um, or maybe they're coming to North Carolina or Florida, but not to California and certainly not to Wyoming um, because you know either those states are a real lock for one candidate or the other, or they're so small, they don't really push the needle in terms of, of getting an electoral college win. Well, let me- And you know, Nancy, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I, I was gonna raise this with, with, with Nancy uh, because she mentioned this notion of equal, equal voting power uh, from the uh, various uh, states. Uh, how, consequ how consequential is that in the light of the fact that uh, we have uh, little uh, small states, uh, and we call them little eeny beeny states, uh, that elect two senators to serve in the uh, in, in in the Congress, while large states, California, New York, uh, and others, only have uh, two senators uh, to serve. So there is inequality at that level. Is that really significant? in uh, the brand of democracy that we're working with here in this country? Right, so I mean, there's no question that we still, that institutions like the Senate are, do, do create a certain imbalance, right? But I would argue that it's a relatively small imbalance that gets magnified um, when you get to the electoral college because of the way in which the state winner-take-all election laws operate, and because of the fact that we that we do have these sort of rural-urban divides, and 
um, and you know, states that lean heavily in one political direction versus another. So it's all of factors that end up taking what, it is not a completely equal system. So it's not a, a completely equal system. However, the inequality is magnified uh, by a combination of the electoral college and the winner take all state laws. And if I could just say really quick, you know, especially when we think about the Senate and think about the Senate in and of itself for a moment, two, rep, two senators per state, whether you're California or Montana or Alabama. And I mean, let's not forget that the Senate in and of itself was created along a model of equal representation for the states that was in its founding decided to decided on in order to balance what was originally the north-south divide and, and by which to say the pro-slavery and anti-slavery divide in the United States. But this balloons out in a way that, and remember too that the Senate was initially supposed to be appointed by state legislatures not elected by the people. The 17th Amendment changed that. So this again is a structure that is about states coming together. And, and as a result, we have a part, you know, one half of the legislative branch was originally designed to not be in the hands of the people, you know, but it then influences the number of electoral college votes, which are also based on a design for the decisions to not be in the hands of the people. So, you know, in terms of broader constitutional design, the problem we're facing today is trying to bring a little d democratic understanding of the, of the way the constitution is supposed to work to a system that was not designed for democracy wholesale. And Atiba, to that point, it's always that I think the founders did not envision that, and you've talked about this, right, in terms of parties weren't envisioned when the system came up. The country, the way it currently exists, we're trying to take something that was very quickly designed. Um, it was uh, designed in Everyone knew that uh, George Washington would be the president and they're, they're coming up with this system. Mm -hmm. And now we look at current day where we are. Is it, does it make sense that we're taking this electoral college that was constructed in that time period and we're trying to fit it to cure or address the current realities of our country? Of our so... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you can look at that on a number of levels, right? You know, if, if we're just talking about politics and elections, you know, people running from office or running for office are going to run in the system that's given, sure. And, and sometimes, you know, this is one of the things that people say is, well, don't change it because everybody knows how to play the game. But then the question becomes, well, that's, is that game really fair? Does that game really reflect a democracy 
which is what we profess to be. And, and I'm hard pressed to, I mean, think about it this way. We've spent the bulk of this hour talking about people trying to work around these structures and these problems. But the reality is, you know, the structure, every structure creates advantages and it creates challenges. But the particular challenges in this structure at the end of the day, run the great risk of not reflecting the will of the people taken together, right? And Nancy mentioned a phrase earlier and I wanted to come back to it. You know, one person, one vote. You know, this phrase in the United States was created in the 60s. The Supreme Court in its, you know, in its opinions about redistricting um, came up with this to basically say, every vote should weigh the same, whether you're in California or Montana or North Carolina. And that's fine on the individual level and maybe district to district, even though there is lots of litigation around this and around its racial impact. We could do a whole other show about that. <laughs> but from the point of view of the electoral college, that each person's vote value ends up being diminished solely depending on which state you live in, right? And, and, and I think ultimately that's the democratic unfairness that we're talking about. And there are advocates out there and on this radio show who are basically saying, you know, the only solution to that is restructuring the system. Well, let me just ask this first. Uh, is there any country that operates as a true democracy? in the sense of one person, one vote, and majority vote wins. And the silence is telling <laughs> to this well, question. Go ahead. So I wouldn't say that I have enough knowledge of other countries' systems to know for sure whether or not there is such a country. I do think that you know the nature of representation um, and representative democracy is that there are going to be some distortions. Um, but that doesn't mean that we want the kinds of distortions that we're dealing with here, right? Where a vote in Wyoming is literally worth four times the amount of a vote in California. And that actually ends up not being that big of a deal as a practical matter because Wyoming is seen as being very solidly red and California is seen as being very solidly blue. So as we were talking about before, none of the candidates go, <laughs> go to either place. But if that's still, you know, that is a, that is a legal and constitutional problem. Um, so I think Again, there are some distortions that are always going to happen because we don't have, it's impossible to have a direct democracy with the kinds of populations that, that most nations in the world have, but we don't have to create a system that distorts it in this particular, you know, distorts it so much and does so in a way that really treats different groups very has has a disparate impact on certain groups um, who are originally groups that were oppressed and and disenfranchised. Well, well, given 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 our present 
political divide that exists in the country? Is there any hope that there will be a change in the, the structural component that we deal with and talk about every four years rather than something that concerns us with the day-to-day -day operation of our various states and the uh, federal government? Is there hope? So, <laughs> you know, I mean, mind you, it does feel difficult right now. And it does feel, um, you know, as of this, as of the date of the recording of this broadcast, we've already seen, you know, the newest Supreme Court justice confirmed. We've seen, you know, the history of the Senate being held by one party and stymieing things that I think are not, you know, popular among the American people generally. And certainly the views on the president are, well, in a word, divided. But I do think that things like the National Popular Vote Compact and the sort of activism that is happening on the state level and the local level are having major influence. And in locations where that's happening, there's hope for people, right? There is hope that, you know, things can be changed on the local level and that there can be a momentum for finding new ways to run elections and new ways to sort of make the process more representative. Uh, you know, there are places where um, young people are getting involved earlier in the process. You know, some localities allow 16 and 17 year olds to vote. You know, we are seeing the abolition of felon disenfranchisement slowly and with fits and starts, but it's happening. Um, and all of this to say the Electoral College is kind of the, the biggest challenge of them all, right? The, the irony of calling it, the, of evoking Moby Dick and calling it the white whale, you know, the big beast that is the hardest to tame. And, but with apologies for that, I think the thing is, you know, grassroots activism can cut at these issues and build a momentum across the country. I find hope in that. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. We hope you stay with us. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue 
our discussion about the uh, Electoral College. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't know, uh, every four years, uh, we are concerned about how our votes will be uh, uh, counted uh, to determine who is the next president of uh, this country. And uh, the Electoral College plays a significant, uh, if not overpowering role in making that decision on our behalf, or at least announcing that decision on our uh, behalf. So we're talking about of the Electoral College, and hopefully at the end of it, you will understand better how it operates, why it operates, and uh, what, if anything, can be done uh, about it. Uh, when we uh, ended our last uh, segment, uh, we were talking about the uh, hopefulness of changing, altering, modifying, or better guiding this, uh, this process. So let me uh, turn it over to Nancy, who wants to offer us some hopeful notes. Well, so I think the hopefulness that I, that I have um, managed to draw from this election cycle is, so I've been volunteering for an organization called Election Protection, or it's actually not an organization, it's a project of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And, um, and they've been working for about 20 years. And, their, their operation is just amazing. Um, but the, the increase in calls that they, so they run a hotline and they also have a field program and the increase in calls from people who are looking to vote and are trying to figure out how to do it because it's actually not that easy. Um, and there are lots of hidden barriers to doing so. Um, but the, the increase in calls that they have received is really spectacular. And um, I mean, you know, I haven't confirmed that with anyone at the organization, but that has just been my impression as a volunteer. And I will say that it's, of course, completely logical because people are we've got massive amounts of unemployment due to the pandemic. Um, and so people are paying attention. I have never seen in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, I, I expect that, that, you know, may not have even, we may not have even reached that level, you know, during the 1960s. And, um, and that makes me hopeful for not just, what might happen in this election, but what might happen with our electoral system going forward after this election, that we might actually have a hope of, you know, putting the compact in place or, you know, with regard to the electoral college, but other problems that we have with voting in this country that we will, you know, that we will make changes. And many of those changes are going to have to happen at the local and state level. Right. Um, but that is where, you know, a lot of these newly activated voters are going to look first um, to get involved. And, and as far to, as, the, go ahead Atiba. I just wanted to jump in briefly and acknowledge that a lot of this change, you know, it's one of the rare upsides of the coronavirus pandemic. 
right? We've had to vote differently this election cycle. And my hope is that notwithstanding the long lines that, that we've been hearing about in terms of early voting, which are in and of themselves positive because they're proof of Nancy's point, right? There are more and more people who want to vote, but it's also more and more people who are finding out that contrary to one person's opinion, voting by mail is, is actually efficient and effective. Having drop boxes to drop off your ballots is actually safe and secure. And creating more options and expanding the amount of time for voting gives everybody the opportunity to be involved. So just to build on this, you know, I hope that we get accustomed to voting being easier and that we demand from our representatives that they continue to make it easy and fair and equal in terms of the electoral college. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talking about, you know, new energized voters, when I think about the electoral college, particularly in those states like California, for example, where there's not a lot of national level campaigning going on because it is a solidly blue state, if you will. Uh, but there are a number of, you know, Republicans who live in, in California, just like there are a number of Democrats who live in Texas. And if we were to move away from the electoral college system and go to a popular vote, do you all have a thought about whether that would uh, motivate other people to vote who may feel disenchanted because of the state that they're in? And, and, and kind of going to Nancy's point about uh, a wasted vote or, or a vote that's not being counted because the electoral college is going to dictate that California always goes Democrat and Texas, at least in you know the past, maybe not this year, uh, has always gone Republican. What might a change to a popular voting system do in terms of encouraging more people to vote, people who don't live in the, the swing states, if you will? Well, I think it, that moving to a popular vote model will help sort of drive home the point that it turnout that matters and that it's not California versus, you know, Wyoming or New York versus Texas. It's your county, your precinct, that each precinct, each vote matters, right? So it's not a game of, oh, the five swing states are going to decide everything. It's every person in every neighborhood and every precinct in every county and every state gets a say. I think that that's absolutely right. And, you know, as someone who, you know, so 20 years ago, I moved from Washington, D.C. to Northern Virginia. Um, and one of my big reasons for doing so was because my vote would matter more in Northern Virginia. Um, I then moved from Virginia, I, I moved from Virginia to Florida. Um, and when I, you know, when I was looking at a move to California, I was thinking to myself, well, the, you know, there were many upsides to moving to California. One of the downsides was that my vote was not going to matter. Obviously, I am a little bit unusual in this regard, but that it, it should matter for everyone. It shouldn't matter where you live. And, and I, I think a national popular, I completely agree with Atiba that a national popular vote kind of system would encourage everyone to 
to feel like it's worth going to the polls, um, regardless of where you live. Well, you, you talked about the uh, increase of, of people coming out to uh, vote uh, in your various uh, areas that there is an increase in uh, calls to the uh, election uh, protection. I'm involved in that here in North Carolina, and I certainly uh, concur uh, with that. And uh, also see that there are signs that there is a significant increase in the number of young people. Uh, who are voting, uh, however you define young people, uh, but that, uh, that there is uh, probably a historic vote that is underway uh, at this, uh, at this uh, very moment in terms of uh, turnout. Uh, none of that seemingly is caused by uh, the conflict over uh, the Electoral College or the inequality of the uh, vote, but is uh, fuel by the passion of people as to what is happening in our country today. Uh, is that significant? Well, I think that historical elections are, I mean, we are in the midst of a historical election. I think that sure, the turnout prior to election day is very encouraging. And just to put my five seconds in, if you haven't voted already, go vote. You know, don't rely on absentee ballots at this point. F make a plan to vote in person and vote safely. And by the way, that election protection number is 1-866-OUR-VOTE. That's 866-687-8683. Call them if you're having problems. That said, the moral of this story that we're talking about today is about how in the close races in the, which this may well be close on a state to state basis, it can be the case, like we've seen four times already, twice in this century, that tremendous national turnout and the national popular vote can go one way, but the electoral college vote can go another way. And, that it, and in a sense, the hopefulness and energy that I see because I'm talking to groups all the time who are very enthusiastic, that energy can get, the balloon can burst if you see that the electoral college distorts the result. And, and I think that, and it's hard to remember and it's shocking after it happens. And the irony of this conversation is that it's been four years and then we remember it again. You know, the challenge here is to pay attention to that and to remember that this is the thing that underlies the entire system. And the fact of the matter is that it takes that much more turnout to ensure that the popular vote and the electoral college vote end up aligning, right? And that's the unfairness, ultimately. And I think, you know, the, the other thing is, I mean, you know, nothing has educated me like being an election protection volunteer as to sort of the level of just lack of information about what about how to vote what voting is um and you know and so you know so every person who i talk to i get very excited that you know one more person has been educated about you know how to vote and 
um, and, and what, you know, why it's important. Um, but, you know, in terms of the electoral college, like the changes need to happen between the elections, right? It is too late now to do anything about any kind of, of real, you know, electoral college as well as uh, other forms of voter suppression that may be out there. There, it, it is too late a week before the general election um, to do anything about that. All, all we can really do is document and hope that after the election, we can make the legal changes that we need to make in order to fix the problems. And, um, and, and you know, my, I am hopeful that this may be the election where we can actually do that. Um, I mean, Stacey Abrams, I think, you know, she's, she's so awesome in so many respects, but she, but one of the points that she made was that she focused her organization's voting um, work on the primary elections, because she said, you know, the primaries will help us to identify the problems and to fix them before the, before the general. Um, and I think, I think she's absolutely right, but I think we need to push that ball back even further um, and, you know, get started, like we need to get started on December 1st, <laughs> um, 2020 to make sure that we have everything in place the way that it should be for 2024. Mm -hmm. And when we think about having a national popular vote for, for the president, it, it appears as though something that would have to happen is there's got to be some standardization in terms of, uh, of how you vote and what you do. And right now we've got this patchwork. So you've got North Carolina that has its, you know, voting laws, and then you've got California with theirs and uh, Wisconsin theirs and Florida theirs. And so, but in order for us to have this, you know, national popular approach, uh, to your point, Nancy, about starting now, what are some of the things that we would like to see when it comes to standardizing voting, uh, be it, you know, early voting, be it uh, in terms of uh, mail-in voting? What are some of the, the uh, approaches that we can start to advocate for to get us on that, that road? So I think that um, I'll divide this into two parts, right? One part is the big swing change and the other part is the sort of state and local level types of changes, right? To, to put out another sort of swing for the fences idea, right? The, the slam dunk here is an amendment about the right to vote in the constitution or college. One could write, you know, a guarantee regarding voting in the US constitution. I mean, people think there's one, but there's not. We could spend a whole show just talking about this. But the short of it is there are a lot of things that the, that the federal constitution tells us that you can't do about voting, discriminating on age, race, gender, but it doesn't tell you what you can or should do. State law tells us that. So the state and local levels, right, we can you know, all of these emergency changes that we've been making about drop box balloting and extending early voting, those could become the norm, right? We can also 
you know, find ways even beyond the pandemic to make it easier to register to vote. Someday, some states let you register online. Some states let you register all the way up to election day. Other states don't. You know, it's these kinds of changes, all of which are about making it easy to show up and vote whenever the spirit moves you all the way up to the time the polls close on election day. Those kinds of changes are the types of things that make opportunity available for everyone. And there are so many, you know, I mean, a national holiday on election day. Um, how about that? That would make a huge difference in terms of, you know, something that could be done on the national level um, in terms of making it possible for people to vote. You know, so, the, you know, there are a million of those kinds of things that could be done. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there because we're out of time. But we'd like to thank our guest, Nancy Chi Canalupo, a professor of law at California Western School of Law, and Atiba Ellis, professor of law at Marquette University School of Law. And we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, of course, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We hope you've learned something and that you will pass this knowledge and information on to your friends and family. And if you have any questions about the show, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe. And if you have not yet voted, there is still time, November the 3rd. Take care, and we'll talk with you soon. Bye.